This next section in our Just Walk series is probably one of the most important sections in the Bible. It's incredibly important because it introduces us to a concept which um, we've really got to think about, we've got to come to terms with if we're understanding the message of the Bible, which is the idea of sin. And sin is a completely uh, out of uh, out of cultural acceptance kind of idea these days. So let's let's have a, a bit of a whistle stop, brief history of sin. I want to take you all the way back to the first century. He was a, he was a trader, a sea trader, and the previous month his brother had been lost at sea. He was going to go on exactly the same trip that his brother had previously been lost in. Uh, and so before he went to uh, the, the, the port, the harbour, to take, uh, take away on the journey, he went uh, across to the temple of Portinus in Rome and made a sacrifice to the gods so that he might, with a bit of hope, be he might appease the gods, he might win the gods round, and something arbitrarily might not happen to him. Little concept of the idea of sin, but the idea of a divine being who might bring retribution, but who could be appeased. Fast forward 2,000 years. Where are we now? I think in Western, Western culture, we tend to have the idea of, um, no idea of the concept of sin actually. That the things that are wrong are decided by society. Uh, and that actually, when we look at the things that we personally do wrong, and I, I, I've kind of drawn this maybe from an extreme, looking at, uh, at the ideas around humanistic uh, counselling within the prison service. Really fascinating. Uh, the, the idea is that most of the things that we have done wrong are shaped by our context, our environment, our upbringing, for good or for evil. And in one way or another, we can reshape by education so that we might not do things wrong. The first one, 2,000 years ago, has little idea of what is right or wrong. It's the arbitrary decisions of the gods. Now we are 2,000 years later, where the decisions of what is right and wrong are shaped by society. One, we don't know what it is. Now, it's constantly changing. Let me introduce you to the concept of sin that the gospel of Jesus Christ introduces. And it's found at the beginning uh, of our reading. Uh, not, it's not obvious, but in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, we read this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's what it says. And John is saying from the previous section, if you remember it from last week, if you were around uh, last week, what, what John introduces is the God who we talk about, uh, the one who is eternal, we've seen, we've handled, we've touched, we've spoken to, we've eaten with. It's Jesus. So God has made himself present with us. And then he says in this verse, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And in that we have this incredible concept of darkness and light, right and wrong, 
good and evil, sin and righteousness, this contrast. But actually what he's saying is what is good, what is right, what is evil, what is sinful, what is sin, what is righteousness, all of those kind of concepts. They're not things that we decide ourselves. They are things which are defined outside of humanity. Actually, outside of the created order, he's saying this. He's saying Jesus, the divine God, has broken into this world and he defines light and darkness. In him, there is no darkness at all. He is not bringing a law. He is the definition of righteousness. In him is righteousness. So what a contrast. 2,000 years ago, what John said about Jesus and the idea of sin was groundbreaking. The idea that the definition of righteousness is not something that society constructs or something that we might be able to appease the gods through arbitrary sacrifice. Rather, what is right and wrong has broken into society and the definition is in Jesus. For us today, the same applies. The distinct gospel concept is that in Jesus, we know right and wrong, but there's something even more amazing and, and great news in what John writes. If we claim to have fellowship in, uh, with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. That sounds very negative, but there is a positive. And the positive is this, that if it is possible to have fellowship with that God, to be in relationship with that God, that is great news. He's saying the God who defines righteousness has broken into our world and it is possible to have fellowship with him. It is possible to be in relationship with that God. And then we have the crisis, which is if he is light and in him is no darkness, we also see the challenge that he cannot have darkness with him either. And so we have the challenge, which is if we claim to walk with him, but we actually walk in darkness. In other words, if we claim to be in relationship with this God, with this Jesus Christ, but our day-to-day -day lives are a pattern which is distinctly different from the light and righteousness of Jesus, if there is a difference between those two, we lie and the truth is not in us. Now, this is really important, I think, what John is saying here. He's using the word, there's a lot of debate around this, but this is what I am convinced of. John is saying, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. In other words, John is saying he's putting himself in the category of possibly being somebody who claims to have light, yet walks in darkness. That's amazing. This is the, this is the Apostle John, an older man by now, somebody who's followed Jesus for 
for years and years and years. And he's saying it is possible that I might claim to be one thing and yet be something else. The final proof of that is I would end up being like one of those who's disappeared off, taught false teachings as we saw last week, taken us off in the wrong direction, finally uh, denied the truth of the message of Jesus. There is the possibility that we might be in that category. Now that, I think for us, is really important for us to come to terms with. It's really easy, and I think it's really easy for a church that is so excited, so enthused, so committed to the idea of the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness that comes in Jesus. It, it's, it's sometimes easy that we might be so taken up with that that we don't also make it very clear that having claimed that, there is also a life which is shaped by that. The Bible describes it in two ways. It describes it that we are made right in Jesus through justification, just as if I had never sinned. And then my life continues in an ongoing work of something called sanctification. The ongoing work of cleansing and redeeming and reshaping and reforming of my life. That is the Christian journey. And that, I think, is what John is talking about here. He's saying, look, having come to faith in this Jesus, having believed in this Jesus, then walk in the light of this Jesus as well. That's why we've called our series Just Walk. Are we walking justly? Right at the center of this little section here is this idea, this gospel concept, this distinct gospel concept of a just walk. We might lie and the truth might not be in us. What are the marks then? What are the marks of being a liar? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question to, to ask, isn't it? Well, John goes on and he helps us. The first thing he says, there is, a, there is a beautiful gospel intervention of hope. Look at how it carries on. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. That's the first bit. So let's have a look at the end of that verse because that is great news. The reality, of the, the reality of the concept of sin in the Bible, which is living outside of the, the way in which Jesus has fulfilled the law of God, living in the pattern of Jesus and our inability to do that, that life, that perfect life, that we can never, that we can never fulfill is resolved because the blood of Jesus purifies us. That is the great gospel message. That's where it starts. The blood of Jesus has purified us from the rebellion against the life that he has set out, against the way in which he has called us to live. That's great news. Do you feel 
Are you feeling as we think through this that I know that, I know I feel like this, I know that I'm not fulfilling that life. Well, the great news is the purifying blood of Jesus delivers us from the impact of that sin. It delivers us from the impact of that separation from God that sin brings. But there's another telltale sign of what it looks like in our lives when we are not liars and when we do hold on to the truth. Look at what it says. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with Jesus. Actually, that's not what John says at this point. He says we have fellowship with one another. I think what John is reflecting on here is a conversation that he remembers when Jesus was walking with his disciples. And it came to an a fulcrum moment in the life of Jesus. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It actually takes up a huge section of the Gospel of John. It's remarkable how much of John's Gospel is centred around that one evening the evening before Jesus is taken and is crucified. And Jesus says this in, in John chapter 13, 34 and 35. He says this, a new commandment I give you, I, I, I command you, he says, love one another. We don't think about love, do we, as being something that can be commanded. We think about love as something that we feel. And Jesus is saying, I actually command you to love one another. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, uh, sorry, um, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why? Because by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's one of the marks one of the marks of God's people, one of the marks of those who the truth resides in, is that little by little we are working hard to grow in our love for one another. That is one of the amazing things about the church. The church brings together the most disparate group of people that society could imagine. Different backgrounds, different experiences, different racial backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different ages, different uh, geographical locations, just everything pulled together into a mishmash pot of people in different locations, just like Castleford. And one of the marks of the work of the gospel in our hearts is that we are learning to love people who are different to us. That is one of the marks of what it is when Jesus' gospel is working in our hearts. Why do I say that? Well, one, because I think it's in the text, but two, because I think it is phenomenally important that we understand the importance of the, of the body of the church as being the place 
where we express and we show love for one another. It's easy to say we love somebody when we never have to see them. But it's really important that we show that we love each other. And that's why I think at the end of, I hope it's the end, coming towards the end, of probably one of the most challenging experiences in most of our lives, this whole coronavirus experience, which has shattered and separated the church so that we are not able to gather in the way that we normally would have gathered. This verse, I think, is saying it is phenomenally important for our work of sanctification that we begin to meet together. Now, I am 100% behind the idea of people feeling as though they're reaching that point in their own time. I get that completely. It has been the most awful of situations. And we all come to a point of comfort in meeting together again in our own ways. But let me appeal to you. Meeting together is one of the marks of expressing our love for one another and one of the ways in which we exercise the work of the gospel in our hearts so that we are able to say that we have fellowship with one another because the blood of Jesus Christ has purified us. It is that divine intervention which has the impact in our relationship with each other. He goes on to say that when this is working out, it becomes a pattern for living. Look at verse 8 to 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make out him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, I thought previously we were saying that we've got to walk in the light. Is this a contradiction? How do we work these two things out? It's not a contradiction. It's a deep, honest, personal reflection. And the reflection is this, I desire to walk in the light. But the reality is, I can honestly say that I am not without sin. I think John is pointing the finger at some of those who've separated themselves from the church and introduced the new, a new idea to the gospel. This idea of being able to be sinless and perfect. The reality is we're not. And so the life of, our, of the gospel working in us looks like this. It is a continuous, honest appraisal, which is marked by confessing of our sins before God. Why do we do that? Because we know that he will forgive us our sins. That's the beauty. It's the reality that we can say that the journey is that we will continue to confess our sins before Jesus. Why do we, why do we have... Want, baptism once 
where we declare that we are now part of this family of Jesus, why do we then have communion again and again and again and again? Jesus was only sacrificed once. I think part of that work of communion is to remind us of the sacrificial work of Jesus and our need to confess our sin before Jesus so that that fellowship and relationship might not kind of re-established but kind of working in our hearts continually so that we are little by little by little by little being changed, being sanctified by the work of Jesus. Our ongoing confession acknowledges that we are liable to continually sin. Nobody claim, don't claim that we are without sin. Claim that we are forgiven. That's the great news. We are forgiven. And therefore we can come with confidence declaring before God our need to confess our sin again because we love the cross of Jesus which has forgiven us for our sin. And so we come to this idea, I think, which is, it's almost a humble hope, isn't it? It's a humble hope. It's this idea that, yes, I'm gonna fail, but I've got hope in Jesus. That is exactly what John picks up on in the first couple of verses of chapter two. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I think what he's saying there is, I don't have an expectation that you will reach that point of never sinning, but I want you to strive towards it. I want your heart to be shaped and orientated toward a desire for that. I want you to be aiming towards that. Why can you aim be towards that knowing that you will fail? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is amazing. What's an advocate? Somebody who stands in our place legally. Somebody who declares for us on behalf of a legal claim and it works like this this is what John is saying the sin that we continue to live it's as though our advocate in heaven Jesus stands before the father and he says something along these lines I know that this child of ours has fallen away again but remember my death. Remember that this child's name is written in the palm of my hands. I will stand before you as his or her advocate, as legal representative saying there is a legal reason why he will not or she will not be dismissed and abandoned and the legal reason is my blood 
It's what I have done. How strong is that? How powerful is that? How reassuring is that? That when Jesus says, I will be your advocate, then we are secure. Just walk. The first thing it does is it defines sin in a way which culture finds difficult to come to terms with. It says that righteousness is defined outside of humanity by God who breaks it. Secondly, it says, you will fail. You will sin. But you have the purifying work of Jesus that justifies you firstly, and then you have the advocating work of Jesus that secures you and secures me in our journey of changing little by little to be like him more and more.